I want to give a shout out to Esther Rich, the greatest teacher in the history of fucking ever. I know I've said it to you many times, Miss Rich, but the kindness you showed me during a very, very dark period in my life has never been forgotten. I learned one lesson from Miss Rich above all else. Give everyone a chance. Everyone. You never know who might touch your life or why they will want to do so. It's good to know you're still out there teaching to this day. Fighting a good fight. I know I'm not the only person who feels this way. My name is Eli. Thank you for listening. Let's get started. And here we go. So, we have now reached the finale of season two. And uh, I'm going to be a little bit transparent here. Dealing with the technical snafus all throughout, you know, recording this season. It's it's really been one of the most difficult things I've ever had to do in my life, quite literally. As I previously mentioned, we lost a couple episodes along the way. Episodes that covered a multitude of topics. Most particularly including underrated films, independent films, and I think we covered people whose careers um, most benefited from the calendar year of 2021 as well. One thing that was covered in a way that was spread out over those episodes actually was possibly the most impactful thing of the year, which was something called the day and date release. For those of you who are not familiar with the term day and date release, it essentially means that in late 2020, Warner Brothers decided to take whatever the slate was for 2021 and and put it directly on HBO Max at the same time that it premiered in theaters. And to anyone who keeps a close eye on this business, you know, we could see that the plan was kind of ludicrous. I'm not here to try and guess how much money HBO Max made from the experiment, but one thing is for sure. They took themselves out of the running to be the biggest studio in the whole game. And don't get me wrong, that is exactly what they would have been at the end of last year had they simply not done this thing. All in all, studios did the best they could in 2021 post-pandemic. I mean, Paramount had a quiet place in the summer. Great! And they had Snake Eyes. Meh. Those were the two big releases for them, and then they delayed everything else. Sony had Venom. Good! And then they had Ghostbusters as well. Wonderful! Which is, you know, impressive, given the fact that they've been non-existent in the box office for the past seven or eight years, minus the occasional Jumanji movie and whatever they take away from the Spider-Man franchise these days being over at Marvel. Universal had Fast 9. Good! They had Sing 2. Good! And they had Halloween Kills. Fucking garbage! And that's somewhat impressive given the circumstances that they were under, which was a lot of bullshit, but we're not going to go into that here. And that's about it. Each of these studios limited themselves to about three heavy hitters in the year 2021. Warner Brothers Studios had many more potential hits than all of the studios combined, actually. 
And because of the announcement to go day and date, they didn't delay a thing. This here really was their slate for the year. A Lin-Manuel Miranda musical called In the Heights, which was based off of a monster fucking Broadway show. Good! They had Malignant, a creature feature, from the director of Saw, which for some reason didn't open around Halloween. Good! They had a sequel to Space Jam, starring LeBron James. A sequel that was talked about incessantly on sports shows for some reason. Fucking garbage. They had King Richard, a movie about the tennis dynasty of the Williams sisters starring, of course, Will Smith in what would be his Oscar-winning performance. Great! They had the third entry of the Conjuring series called The Devil Made Me Do It. Meh. And that's notable because the two previous Conjuring movies are two of the highest-grossing horror films of the last 10 years. They had Godzilla vs. Kong. Wonderful! Which I've talked about in previous episodes. They had an R-rated, expensive and more detailed iteration of the Mortal Kombat series. Meh. A movie that people wanted to be good uh, so bad that they just started making up reasons why the previous cinematic entries of that franchise were good when we all know they were terrible. Like, come on. Yep. They had the Suicide Squad movie directed by James Gunn. Wonderful! Which was ultimately an apology to the audience for the first Suicide Squad movie. A movie that also garnered a really, really good spinoff called, of course, The Peacemaker, which has subsequently become one of the biggest shows on HBO. Speaking of apologies, you had the four-hour Zack Snyder cut of the Justice League. Meh. A, a movie that y'all made petitions to get made. A movie that could have released theatrically in the chapters, like, let's say, a, a Harry Potter or a Twilight or... Like the up-and-coming Fast and Furious finale, which is split into two movies. And, you know, you could have doubled your money either way. But I digress. They had the fourth Matrix movie. F -f 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 fucking garbage. Now, for the most part, it's a radically differentiating vision of what the franchise has been for the past 20 years. And I always mention that it's a bullshit movie, and I've done my whole thing about the Matrix already. But you can't deny its earning potential especially given the fact that it was actually promoted well and people my age at least cinema fans of my era were hyped up for it but i'll digress once again and then you had dune great a movie with a cast that had nothing but the most in-demand relevant group of actors and actresses from top to bottom a hell of a cast a movie uh that's gone to become I don't know, one of the more critically acclaimed movies of 2021, if not the last decade or so. And it made, what, half of what it could have made domestically and worldwide? Dune earned $40.1 million at the domestic box office, despite facing competition from a dual release in the home on HBO Max. Globally, the movie has earned north of $202 million. Look, all this time later, I'm pretty sure we can just chalk up the day and date release being an experimental thing and we can brush it off from there. This thing is already to this decade uh, to what 3D glasses were to the last decade. It's antiquated, it's obsolete, and it's barely of any use in 2022. I met a couple of people to this day who would prefer to see something like Dune or James Bond or a big time horror movie or whatever tentpole-esque type of flick on a TV with amazing surround sound and 4K definition. These are the same individuals 
who find endless complaints about the movie-going experience at a theater, whether it be how expensive concessions are, or people talking, or rappers crinkling while the movie's going on, or whatever the fuck. And whenever I get into any in-depth conversation about film, one of the questions I literally asked everybody I talked to is, if you prefer the home viewing experience to theaters. And you know what? Fuck it. I, I, I am now recording in a studio, finally. And I'm here with the sound engineer. What's your name, sir? Uh, my name is Sebastian. Hello, Sebastian. Hey, this, this is Sebastian, the sound engineer, and I'm going to ask him the same questions I've been asking all the people who've approached me about f this last year in the day and date release. Sebastian, mm -hmm. if you had the choice between seeing a movie at home on a really great sound system with a humongous TV by yourself, would you prefer that to going to a movie theater at all? Yes, I would pretty much prefer to stay at home with my awesome sound system <laughs> and 60 or 80 inch TV for sure. Okay, okay. Yeah. Do you have that situation at your home? Uh, I have a 50 inch TV. Oh, okay. And I have a Marshall amp. Oh, okay. but it's, it sounds really good, but it's mono. Uh, I'm looking into buying maybe um, a sound bar or something like that. You know, that takes uh, 5.1, which is Dolby Atmos and something like that. So I'm, I'm looking into buying some better sound system for, for Christmas. I mean, my God. Yeah. That is a flex upon flexes, sir. May I ask you why you prefer that experience to a movie theater? Because I feel freer, actually, to do whatever I want. Like if I want to drink, if I want to smoke, if I want to laugh hard or whatever, I can be, you know, myself, basically. You can't <laughs> do that in a movie theater. Well, you can't smoke. No. And I can't. I mean, I guess you can drink. But um, I don't know. The comfortableness of being in your own house or, or apartment, I wouldn't change that for anything. Hey, I mean, you got the setup to really enjoy that. Some yeah. of us are out here on our laptops watching James Bond movies, and we're clamoring for theaters. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. I just wanted to let you know. I just wanted to have you on the record here, okay? Of course. You are one of the very, very few who've chosen that answer, respectfully. Definitely. I've quickly come to the realization that people who do prefer streaming over theaters fall into one of three categories. Either, like our man Sebastian here, the people who balled out and spent thousands upon thousands of dollars to get the kind of 4K surround soundproof situation that Sebastian has that's practically a replica of a theater just smaller. B, people who are in the 50 to 65 year old demographic who don't wanna take the physical effort to go to something that they're not guaranteed to like at a movie theater. Funny enough, these people claim to be diehard film fans, but, you know, don't want to go out and see them when they come out. And people who can't afford to. And I don't mean that just in the sense of, like, having the money to go. As expensive as movies are these days, anybody with a job can afford to go and technically see a movie, per se. The problem, however, seems to be that the movie-going experience has gotten a lot more expensive. I mean, not only are you paying for the movie, not only are you paying for the concessions, 
or, you know, going to dinner before the movie, if that's the case, but you're also paying the gas to get there and back. Say you're a married couple with kids or a person with two jobs or something like that. As much as you may like film, as passionate as you may be, you might not have the means to go considering your circumstance. Life happens. The day and date releases served as an absolute convenience for a post-pandemic situation. I'm not a fool. I see why it exists. There's some dude in rural Wyoming somewhere, and the nearest movie theater is like 40 miles away, and he gets to see Dune in his house day of and talk about it with his friends. Good for him. It was good for the people who couldn't wrap their heads around COVID as well. It was good for what it was at the time it came out for us dealing with this COVID bullshit. This episode is brought to you by Boss of CMOS, the number one CMOS brand in Washington state. So what are the benefits of Irish CMOS? Often touted as a superfood, proponents of this algae claim it can strengthen immunity, improve digestion, and even produce glowing skin over time. Irish moss alone contains 92 of the 102 minerals that our bodies need in order to thrive. Boss of Sea Moss is a brand that incorporates Irish sea moss into things like face mask gels and bath bombs. They also have lemonades both in the original flavor and a new strawberry lemonade, as well as two original blends that you can put into smoothies of your own. The original 92 mineral formula and the herbal blend with all 102 minerals support black owned businesses. Check out Boss of CMOS at their website, bossofcmos.com. Again, that's Boss of CMOS, S E A M O S S.com. All one word, by the way. We've been able to see the end game of this streaming versus theater conversation. The whole focal point of the year of 2021 when it comes to the film business was to see how much of a dent streaming was going to have. And if it was going to actually become the predominant way in which we see films for the distant future. And for right now, for the most part, the day and date release has drastically been decreased. Of the day and date releases I can think of off the top of my head in 2022, I mean, hmm. There was a movie called Firestarter from Paramount Pictures that was released in the summer and did no business. No good. There was a movie... Uh, called Honk for Jesus, Save Your Soul, a movie that's one of the more underrated films of the year, if my opinion means anything. Great! But hey, that did no business either. And I saw both of those movies opening weekend. Don't ask me why, but trust me, I would know. No business. In the trades, there was a very public fallout from Scarlett Johansson going on to Disney Plus for releasing Black Widow Day and Date. Because of that lawsuit, people like Emma Stone and Emily Blunt used their day and date releases for their movies as leverages to get more money. In 2022, the family film market has changed decisively. Everything is being released online that could have made an impact on the box office. Once upon a time, a Pixar release meant that you had to get the fuck out of the way and let them open on a weekend to themselves. Outside of them bringing back like a Incredibles or a a Finding Dory kind of familiar franchise that we, we've been used to. I would say that the franchise films from Pixar 
are no longer a threat. And the days of them having the respect to get weekends to themselves may be absolutely extinct because of all the things going on at Disney+. Plus. Back in 2013, Steven Spielberg was at uh, one of these, uh, these film panels that get held at USC, like one of these snooty things that they hold so that they can feel more important than the rest of the world when it comes to their film students and everything like that. Anyway, he was there. And in that year of 2013, he suggested something that seemed like the end of the world when it came to the movie business. Quote, eventually there's going to be a price variance. You're going to have to pay $25 to see the next Iron Man, and you're probably going to have to pay something like $7 to see Lincoln. End quote. I understand that his ultimate point was that heartfelt, emotional, Oscar-type films would take the cheap seats in comparison to the tentpoles. That's understandable. But I got a question, okay? Like, I just want to play devil's advocate and ask this seriously. Why would that be such a bad idea? Like, I don't know if the price disparity would be something like $25 in comparison to $7, but look, if I have Top Gun in my theater, I know that I'm playing it on half of my screens. And no matter what I charge opening weekend, I'm going to make a fuckload of money. In that same weekend, hypothetically, okay? Let's say I have something like, good luck to you, Leo Grand, right? Now, I'm only gonna have one screen of it. But I'm gonna wanna sell as many tickets as I possibly can, right? Maybe a cheaper price point gets you a better opportunity to sell more tickets. Maybe it keeps your movie in theaters for a little bit longer than it originally would. That's what you would want, right? If you were releasing a movie like that. Otherwise, you would have released it on a website. The sizable difference in between those two movies, of course, is advertising, promotion, and even like, you know, the press run of the film in general is going to be seismically different. So seismically different that there's no way that something like Leo Grand should cost as much as Top Gun at any point in time to go and see in a movie theater, right? It's almost unfair, isn't it? I mean, to even further push this hypothetical narrative, right? Let's say I'm the filmmaker who just made Leo Grand, and the studio comes up to me and says, you know what? You're not gonna be in the A-tier price range. You're gonna be in the B-tier price range of, let's say, $15. 12 to $15 as opposed to the 30 that you'd have to see for like the Batman or some shit like that. Now I can understand that to me, the filmmaker, that can be a little bit insulting. That's the game, isn't it? To quote Bodie Brodus from a great show called The Wire about 10 to 15 years ago. The game's been rigged for a fucking long ass time. I mean, when shit goes bad and it's hell to pay, where they at? This game is rigged, man. We like them little bitches on the chessboard. 
It wouldn't be a proper finale to wrap up the season without covering the top five films of the year, I know. But before that, we must go over the honorable mentions. This is about the number twos, the runners-up, the Damarinos. While some people reached the peak, others thought, you know what? This is high enough. I call it honorable mention. The Eyes of Tammy Faye. You go to movies that are based off of real-life figures with a lot of scandal, and you don't really expect everything to be historically accurate. And there's a bit of stuff in this film that doesn't necessarily match up to the real-life events or timelines. It's a bit way too long, and for the most part, the first 15 minutes or so are kind of slow. I mean, there was a movie called House of Gucci that was released in 2021, and technically speaking, I think that might be a better-looking better directed and more effectively done biopic around controversial scandalous figures or whatever. However, sometimes one performance is all you need to have it be worth mentioning when it comes to any time, any kind of tops of the year lists, the kind of performance that's not only the best outing from a particular actor that you've seen over and over again, quite possibly one of the greatest performances of the last 20 years. And that is unquestionably what Jessica Jastain does in this film. In a year where a couple of actresses actually had their career best performances, uh, Lady Gaga and Kristen Stewart did, Catriona Balfe did, and Alana Haim did, even though she's only done one movie. The award season justifiably belong to Jessica Chastain. The Oscar race for Best Actress in a Leading Role was absolutely, positively over by the end of the month of September. And in respect to the other actresses who had a banner year, every actress that I've named, sometimes when it comes to awards, you kind of fall victim to a -a one-of-a-kind performance from a -a one-of-a-kind actor or actress. Kind of like this. Shout out to Andrew Garfield as well, who had an incredible year himself with Tick, Tick, Boom and this film as well. There was Cruella, of all things. (laughs) I mean, when I think of these live-action Disney remakes, I can't help but to be, like, unimpressed by how hollow some of them feel. I would say that the ones that have been released so far, I mean, out of all of them, Aladdin was probably the only one that had its own identity away from the animated film. The rest of them, though, feel so soulless that I kind of wonder why they were made in the fucking first place. Cruella was a much more riskier endeavor than any of the live-action Disney remakes. I mean, really. Like, taking a character that nobody, and I mean no fucking body held in high regard in terms of Disney villainy and they like created a back world and they had like soundtracks and it was in a fashion world and they took all these risks that kinda weren't there in 101 Dalmatians and it's all so good that not only does it justify more sequels but I mean, it might be the signature role for Emma Stone. And that's saying a lot, considering how much she's done already. I saw this movie once 
and I thought I was overreacting, and then I saw it again, and then I realized that I was correct in my original thought. And then, with fresh eyes, not even two months ago, I saw it again, and it reconfirmed everything that I thought before and what I just told you. This is really, really good stuff, and I'm, I'm not afraid to say that as a man, and I'm not afraid to say that I'm looking forward to a sequel from this. There was Antlers. Antlers was technically made in 2020, but we're going off release days here, so fuck off. Antlers is everything you would want from a horror movie if you're a guy like me. If you're somebody who fancies story over gore, substance over style, and a creative way of ratcheting up the tension, I, I honestly can't tell you how to make a more perfect horror movie than what's presented here. I mean, Scott Cooper is a very slow-paced, slow-burn kind of director. And, I mean, that style is so perfect with what's going on here. It's just a movie that makes you care about the characters so much that when they are in peril, the tension is completely built off of you wanting them to survive other than what you're looking at. And, I mean, I'm not necessarily the one to shit on horror movies that uses its gimmicks well but it's so few and far between when that actually happens that when something like this comes along I can't help but to be overtly impressed I mean there's so many independent horror movies that are creative to the core that don't get a decent shot out here and although Scott Cooper movies aren't really indie features it is nice to see something that's this low key execute so many things so well. Okay, now to the top five. Number five is Encanto. And look, I mean, as a man of a certain age that still willingly and unapologetically watches Disney films, I've come to appreciate what I like to call the mid-tier Disney film. Like films that keep it simple, and straightforward. Like, I respect the big spectacle films that have become really popular with the masses that makes billions of dollars, like the Frozens and the... I mean, what else is there? Like, you know, those type of heavy ballad, toy-inducing kind of things. I respect those when they're good. However, I tend to find little to complain about when it comes to mid-tier Disney. There's films like... um like, Oliver and Company was good. Brave Little Toaster was good. Like, The Great Mouse Detective was good from back in the day. Like, all those went overlooked and underappreciated. After that, like, there was, like, um, there was the, the Emperor's New Groove. There was Brother Bear. There was Meet the Robinsons. Like, all of those were very enjoyable, and they hold up as well. And, like, uh, let's see here. Most recently, there was, like, Princess and the Frog, and there was Pete's Dragon, and there was Good Dinosaur. Like, all of that is what mid-tier Disney is. Shit you forget about, but when you look back on it, you're like, oh, shit, that was good, you know what I'm saying? Is it too early to say that whenever Lin-Manuel Miranda does something that we can just expect the music to be on point and enjoyable? Like, can we just accept that by default? The ongoing narrative was that he was overrated because of the lack of success of In the Heights. But as I covered in another episode, the reasons for the lack of the success of that film 
are somewhat complicated, okay? However, in my humble opinion, even in that movie, In the Heights, the music never, ever, ever disappointed. And that is very much the case here. I mean, sure, not all of the songs slap, okay? But the ones that do cannot be denied whatsoever. Encanto, quite simply, is the best movie musical since Dreamgirls back in 2006. That is 16 years ago. Number four is King Richard. (sighs) At the time of this recording, it is sadly very uncool to speak complimentary things about Will Smith. Because that one incident... Uh, That one ceremony, a large portion of society has all of a sudden gained amnesia as to how important that man has been throughout the last 35 years or so. I won't speak too much about the incident here, but what I will say is that the incident nullified a night where he was going to be celebrated for this performance that was undoubtedly the best performance from a leading role for a guy in 2022. And not only that, that is the best performance of that guy's career. And that's a hell of a statement considering who that guy is. If you've ever seen any of the stock footage of Richard Williams from the 90s, any interview, hell, if you've ever heard the Williams sisters themselves talk at length about how their father is, you will understand just how much Will Smith nails this fucking role. Not only that, I mean, the film itself is filled to the brim with great supporting performances. There's John Bernthal, there's Tony Goodwin, there's Sonia Sidney and Demi Williams, who played the Williams sisters. And then there's Anjanu Ellis as Richard's wife, Brandy. And she's one of the better performances in this film. And in some cases, she matches intensity with Smith bit for bit. I fixed Serena's serve because you messed that up. You did what? Yes, I fixed that toss because you messed it up. Mm -hmm. I'm here. I've been here dreaming and believing just like you. Mm -hmm. You just don't want to see me. So uh, what do you want? What do you want? You want to thank you? That's all right, Richard. That's all right. I don't need your thank you. Unlike you, I don't need the world to tell me I'm great. The whole movie is impressive to watch from beginning to end, really. We all know how it ends quote-unquote, right? And that actually makes it more enjoyable. Like, odd as it may sound, this film, this performance, would be held in so much higher of a regard if not for that fucking Oscars thingy. And that's a real shame. Number three is A Quiet Place Part Two. Look, horror movies are built off of gimmicks. All of them. Like, they're not character-driven. Most of the time, they're not really even heavy on the CGI either. Like, the most bankable horror movies that exist right now are not designed to be tent poles by any measure. 
and they haven't really been for a long time. I know we like to think they are because of these iconic franchises that have been around for 30 plus years, all these slashers, but no, man, horror has always been in its own little gimmicky ass space. The Quiet Place films, both of them, have a gimmick just like everybody else, but that gimmick is just so ingenious. Both of these movies tell a simple story with a simple gimmick, and every time so far, it's been a very memorable movie-going experience. There's a large percentage of the movie-going population that always complain about crowds that are a bit too chatty if the movie's playing. Sounds of candy wrappers and movement, you know, they irk the most uptight kind of film-goer. But in a movie like the Quiet Place movies, and especially The Quiet Place Part 2, the gimmick kind of relies on you shutting the fuck on up. I've seen this movie four times in a movie theater, and each time the story, the simple story, was compelling enough to keep the auditorium completely silent, all the while like raising the stakes from what came before and making the characters even more sympathetic than what they were and putting them in more peril in more creative ways. It's like tentpole minimalism, you know what I mean? And it's intense because you care about the characters that are being chased all the while knowing very little of their backstory or where even the aliens come from. Like, we don't know that yet. We're two movies in. <laughs> these things, these little tiny imperfections of backstory are something that we would complain about, like, as audience members in any other franchise than this. Quiet Place movies have just done nothing but hit Grand Slam so far. Number two is Dune. I like Dune plenty. I, I truly do. It's, it's number two for a reason. Even though it's number two, I'm just not as crazy as everybody is for it. I, I just want to play devil's advocate all the time. Maybe it's just me being contrarian to all the massive, massive goddamn hype that existed for it all the months before its release. I most certainly wasn't a fan of the movie that came before it, like the one that it's based on was fucking trash. And maybe that contributed to me really not giving a damn about the film all the way up until its release date. However, I'll be the first to acknowledge that there's a lot of things about this film that you can't really deny. It's the most ambitious movie of 2021. Like it has the best ensemble Everybody's terrific. Like Oscar Isaac and Rebecca Ferguson especially are great. It has a bona fide, like, leading man performance from Timothy Chalamet. It has the best one-two punch combination of cinematography and visual effects. It is quite possibly the best non-Christopher Nolan IMAX experience that I've ever possibly had. And and it it it, it builds like this. Lord of the Rings, Harry Potter-esque type of world that can constitute multiple spin-offs. Like, it can be its own universe, whether it be TV shows or films. In a way that, you know, everything the DC universe seems incapable of doing these days. It's this sweeping, epic story that's well-structured, it's unique, like... It, it does everything that movies of its size are supposed to do these days. 
and it does them very, very well. I, I don't know why it bugs me to say so much good shit out loud about this movie or to like this movie as much as I honestly did. Feels like I'm buying into this massive hype that came before it, and that feels icky. But considering the large, large number of movies this size with hype this loud that don't even remotely come close to living up to their hype, Dune is a movie that you kind of have to respect even if you don't like it. This movie set the bar really high for any further releases related to it, related to its universe. It's it's a borderline masterpiece, man. It really is. That makes me angry to say. Best movie of the year is Spider-Man No Way Home. And I've talked about it on numerous occasions throughout these episodes. I don't know what to say about it that I haven't said already, but I will elaborate on one thing. <clears throat> it is a masterpiece. It is a top five Marvel movie. And I'm tired of debating you jabronis about that. Somewhere out there, there's one of you guys who talk ill about the MCU and do it as loud as you can so that anybody can hear you. You, you, you do it because you want to feel like you're separate from the crowd. You want to feel contrarian, as I do. I understand your sentiment. But even you have one movie in this fucking canon that you enjoy. Maybe even that you love. And I got to tell you, I'm not saying that No Way Home is the best Spider-Man movie. Because, you know, there's an animated one released by Sony that's even more superior than this that was released a couple of years ago. But I'm just here to tell you, contrarian guy, whatever your MCU title is that you really feel is superior to No Way Home that has nothing to do with the Avengers or the Guardians of the Galaxy, I'm out here for all the smoke. Let me know what that is, and I'll tell you, I'll set up a debate that we can have on this podcast, just you and I. Challenge them. Right? And let make sure your people is there to see the game. Because you might get embarrassed. Trust me. I'm here for all the smoke, baby. Spider-Man No Way Home is the best MCU movie to come out since... I mean, I'd really have to think about it, bro. I'm going to be honest with you. And that's it. That's that's the top five. But I got to say, there's one more movie I want to mention, and that's the Eli pick. Like, that's the sentimental pick. And that pick is for a movie called The Harder They Fall. Look, my, my, my grandfather, the great James Joyner, he really only watched Westerns when I was a boy. In fact, I would say... His love of that genre was borderline film geeky. Like, he didn't know anybody's name, like any actor's name outside of Wayne and Eastwood or anything like that, but he did know those movies front to back. Like, he knew the world that they were in, even though they all kind of looked the same to me when I was little. The Harder They Fall is so much more of a personal picture than anything else that came out in 2021 because I was, like, when I was watching it, I realized more and more that my grandfather would have absolutely adored this movie. 
In fact, it, it, it might have been his favorite Western of all time. I mean, he always complained that there were not enough black actors in Westerns, given that there were so many black people around in the Old West. He would always tell me when I was a boy that the black cowboys are not a myth. Like, black cowboys actually existed. And I remember he saw a movie called Posse back in, like, 94, 95. And I think he may have even liked that film. He just thought Mario Van Peebles was just like a... He was too much of a... <laughs> he was too much of a pretty boy, he'd say. He's like, he's too pretty to be a cowboy, you know? And given the actors that are in the heart of they fall, I mean, like, you know, Lakeith Stanfield and Idris Elba and Jonathan Majors, those are some handsome motherfuckers. He might have had that complaint as well about the food. I don't, I don't know. I do think the action as well as the visual style would have made James Joyner very happy. Like the the previous five films that I've mentioned, my top five, those are films that are honestly like legitimately better made and better executed than this one. But but this is just such a sentimental pick that I have to mention it. I, I just have to. James Joyner would have loved it. And because of that, I love it too. Once upon a time, there was a young philosopher slash rapper that grew to be a legendary actor that we know as Ice T. Back in 1999, on an album called The Seventh Deadly Sin, Ice T said something that will go down in history as one of the most truthful things ever said in recorded human history. Ice T, baby. This goes out to all you haters out there. Acting like a brother done did something wrong because he got his game tight. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Niggas, sharpen your aim. I know it seems like that statement came out way before 1999, but if somebody can find me a clip of somebody regularly using the phrase, don't hate the player, hate the game, before Ice-T came out with that song, please let me know. Send me the clip and I'll correct myself. My point is, 2021 was a year spent on hating a lot of players. Hating Netflix for releasing big films that weren't in theaters. Yep. Hating people like The Rock flooding the market with their image and likeness. Yep. Hating people like Vin Diesel for understanding the profitability of a franchise that may have lost its luster a tad bit. Yep. And most notably, hating the MCU, which was one of the bigger trends in public film discourse that only game Steam after the end of the Infinity Saga. Yep, 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 yep. So much hate directed at the people who are playing the game the only way that they know how to play it. Playing a game that goes out of its way to highlight only big projects and not small ones. He ain't lying. Not even mid-sized ones. A game that would rather release two or three films a year in a theater that cost three to four hundred million dollars a pop than things that can actually turn a profit based off of a small budget. He ain't lying. The game that doesn't celebrate a $35 million profit as much as a $100 million one, regardless of what that budget is. He ain't lying. A game that has not only reduced the price of its product in theaters in regards of a post-pandemic situation, but a game that in 2021 made you think that home viewing was the way 
despite almost 100 years of theater-going experience just so that they can turn a profit from subscription channels that are going to make money any fucking way. It warms my heart that the people who do listen and who come up to me tend to want to talk about film in depth. And like, not to sound corny or anything, but it's really heartwarming. I don't really know of a better word to describe it, but the more I do this, the more I realize that there are a lot of people who are passionate about film in a way that I am. Or at least they're passionate about the films that they like and they defend. But I mean, that's everybody, isn't it? Like anybody who's listening to this, I'm pretty sure you have at least a handful of films that you hold close to the chest that other people may not like as much as you and you'll go to bat for them because of what it means to you, whether or not you're aspiring to be in this business. Or if you're an artist in any way. And anyway, no matter what your background is or where you happen to live, there's at least a handful. And I feel that's a very beautiful thing. I want to thank all of the people who helped contribute to this season of RV8. And all the people who are willing to spend time to contribute to the next season who've promised that they're going to give interviews or whatever. I'm going to thank you ahead of time, man. 2022 is almost over. For me... Things are stabilizing in terms of how I get these episodes finished and edited and all that there. To those of you who've offered your services to contribute, I hear you. You'll be on deck soon enough. My name is Eli. As always, thank you for listening. And I'll see you soon.